Okay, but what about the big picture of your career? Because as creatives, on, on any given day, it can be very easy to think, what the hell am I doing with my life? But our problem is we want to get out of the poem too quickly. I discovered that I would tend to have a, a major insight about 10 past 10 in the morning. Hello and welcome to The Common Creative. My name is Chris Meredith. And I'm Paul Fairweather. And we're on a mission to capture and share the tools and techniques of creativity in business. And this week's guest is a bit of a podcasting creative guru, Mark McGuinness, based in the UK. Paul, what do we get out of that amazing interview? Incredible conversation, uh, Chris, with Mark. Um, I've been following Mark for at least a dozen years. Mark is a, a coach uh, focusing on creatives and people, you know, with a creative bent. But as he says on his page, he's also a poet. And when I first saw that, uh, it really caught me. So I've admired his work for, for, for many years. He has great, great insights. I've had a conversation with him over, over a couple of year period. And uh, he has a, a very successful podcast called The 21st Century Creative. I think he's up to season four now. He's an incredibly uh, thoughtful and insightful person. And we got, we got lots of things from him. Uh, we got a, a great story about when he uh, became a better poet. Uh, he has a fantastic idea about, because artists and creators aren't on, on a corporate ladder, about building assets. And he had a a great quote about spending more time to become better. It was uh, fantastic. Chris, what did you get out of it? Well, taking the time to kind of sweat an idea, he said a poet is that person who spends that extra hour on that line. And in the world where we are all trying to work so fast, I thought that was a wonderful insight about creativity, not to just grab it and move on, but to let it mull, go back to it, write it, rewrite it and rewrite it. So insights like that and many more. Amazing interview. Hope everyone wants to tune in. Let's bring Mark on. So, Mark, thanks for joining us today. It's great to have you as a, um, a guest on our podcast. It's great to be here, time zones permitting. I think we've managed to align the stars. Mark, a huge welcome to you. Uh, I feel like we're all very much kindred spirits because each of us has a creative outlet. Uh, Paul, as I'm sure you know, is an artist, a watercolorist. Uh, well, I'm not earning a living. I'm a photographer, a photo artist, and you, of course, are a poet. So I feel like we're all struggling with that blend of creative outlet and business. I know you connect the two and sometimes don't connect the two. So it's really good to have you on the show. Welcome. Oh, it's great to be here and open it up with uh, like-minded souls. <laughs> I feel a bit left out. I'm not, I'm not English. <laughs> that's a blessing uh, yeah. so, mark i suppose to jump right in um do you have a a view about you know creativity in a in a post-covid world uh we're certainly seeing you know australia is almost post-covid i think england's probably not quite there yet but do you have a, you know i know you you coach people around the world do you have a sense of um where creativity is going to sit well, one thing that keeps coming back to me is something I heard on a guest on James Altucher's podcast, where he said, the pandemic isn't changing any trends, but it's accelerating a lot of them. And I feel like, you know, it was really weird when lockdown came along, for instance. And I, I first read, 
you know, the rules of what the government let us do and what we weren't allowed to do. And I thought, that looks like my normal life. <laughs> Stay at home, talk to people on Zoom. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, I've been doing that. And it was kind of odd because normally our car is the one sat in the driveway. All our neighbors would head off into Bristol. And I looked out the window and it's like everyone had joined us, except obviously they hadn't. And I was thinking, well, maybe – now, I'm not suggesting everybody wants to work from home all the time because I know that's hell on earth for a lot of people. But I do get the sense that a lot of the options that maybe creatives have been exploring and playing with for some time are now suddenly becoming a bit more mainstream, partly down to necessity. But people are realizing, well, you can get a lot done online. And, you know, I think we have all well and truly reached the limits of our patience with what we want to do online. But hopefully what we will do is we will all come out of this with more choices, as well as some more appreciation of things that we took for granted beforehand. So I think choices are always good for creativity. Mark, I want to give I can jump in. You coach creatives around the world. And uh, I'm fascinated to know what, what are the common challenges that creatives face? What are the problems that you're helping them solve in your coaching? Well, you know, I think Paul was touching on it in the introduction. It's like, you know, how do you find time and space to do the thing that you really want to do, that you feel called to do? when the world isn't necessarily set up to help you do that thing as a priority, you know, it's not, it's not as though careers officers were always steering us in the direction of writing our, our unfinished novel or, you know, saying, well, what the world needs right now is a few more watercolors or, you know, whatever it may be. So there's, I think very often with my clients, there's a sense of swimming against the tide to a degree and wanting to come into a conversation where, you know, I hear a lot from clients, they say, well, you get me, you understand, even if they're a business owner, for instance, you understand why money isn't the main driver of this business. Obviously, it needs to happen. But, you know, a lot of the advice that people get around their career or their business, understandably, is all driven by the extrinsic motivations, by the money, by the status, by whatever. Whereas with creatives, what I think it's not like we're a different species or we have entirely different personality, but we are very highly motivated by the intrinsic, as the scientists call it, but I prefer to call it love. We do this work because at some point we fell in love with it and we just can't let go of it, even if there's been a few trial separations along the way. <laughs> Many trial separations. So just on, your, on your point of career counselling, you know, when I was at school, and you might be the same, I went to a Catholic school, and mm. our career counselling uh, amounted to, you want to be a priest? Uh, no. Next. <laughs> that was our was recruiting department for the Vatican. Yeah. <laughs> so just in terms of, so you work with, work with creatives and obviously some that are just creatives and also business people who yeah. are creatives, uh, business people that work with other creatives. Like is it, it's, it's not purely just artists and poets and photographers uh, that you work with? Um, yeah, there's a whole spectrum from, you know, the fine artists, the um, commercial creatives, you know, designers, copywriters, people like that, um, sometimes other coaches, media performers, presenters, media makers, film makers, producers, screenwriters. I do quite a bit with screenwriting. That's quite interesting. Um, and then at, I guess at the most business-like end is our 
agency owners, studio owners, occasionally owners of other kinds of business. But my rule of thumb is it's my client is somebody that we never have to discuss why creativity matters because right. they've dedicated their life to it and their work to it. And some people will come to me and say, well, you know, I'm a professor or I work in a corporation, but, and then they tell me why creativity is, is absolutely central to their calling and I'm down with that and you know it can sometimes be a refreshing change um, to talk about but I do like actually I do like the whole context I mean if I were just working with fine artists all day I would probably get a little bit of a hankering for some direct response copywriting um, and if it were the other end of the spectrum it was advertising agencies all day then I probably would want a bit of a break from that too so I, I I'm lucky I get a lot of variety so well is there an answer to this question about swimming against the tide i'm thinking there are two potential ways for a creative to deal with that urge to create and one is to say find a box and sort of put it in that box and do it when you have to which might be saturday mornings for three hours and then you've done your bit and then you go back to normal or is there a way of kind of blending it bringing that creative urge into your work or your family or sport or whatever it might be there's a about five different answers to that I came up with in my motivation book. So I, so I, <laughs> I wrote a, book you might. a few years ago. Yeah, of course. It's never straightforward with a coach. <laughs> you, you're not going to get a straight answer. <laughs> um, so I wrote this book years ago called Motivation for Creative People, which is all about the balance between the different types of motivation, intrinsic and extrinsic, and personal, aka you're an individual values and drivers and then what i call social motivation which is all the energy that we get from other people and i came up with these towards the end of the book i came up with i think it was five different creative career models so it was like an on an analogy with business models so number one is the one that we all kind of grow up dreaming about which is lucrative art where you get paid shed loads of money for writing novels or being a rock star or being in a hollywood movie or whatever so that you're kind of being paid to do your art and that's great, um, but it can be problematic. You know, the whole thing of turning your work, it, it, you know, the thing you love into your job. And, you know, there's a lot of pressure and stuff goes with that. Then we have commercial creativity, being designer, copywriter, consultant, whatever, using your creativity to help somebody solve their problem or achieve their goal. Then we have day job and night flights, which is accountant by day, avant-garde novelist or whatever by night where you have a complete separation of church and state and you say i do this for love and fun and i can do what the hell i like with it because there's no there's nothing riding on it and that's a huge benefit for some people and then i have a day job that pays the bills and gives me a bit of social life and keeps me off the streets between nine to five but then further along is what i practice myself and what a lot of my clients kind of gravitate towards which is what i call symbiotic creativity where so the analogy is in symbiosis in nature so like in finding nemo for instance we have the clownfish that gets to live with the poisonous sea anemone and they have a deal the clownfish can hide in the anemone's tentacles not get eaten and in return the anemone doesn't sting it to death because it's got some special coating on it so these two different species work together. So for me, it, the way that works is you have two or more disciplines that are creative, and some of them are more uh, intrinsic, pure creativity, pure autonomy and freedom, and others have a bit more responsibility and money and practical value to others. So for me, I've, 
I've got poetry on the one hand, and then I have my coaching business on the other. But And the point about the symbiosis is one couldn't really live without the other or it wouldn't really work so well. So I've got um, the kind of coach I am is intertwined with the fact I'm a poet. I have tried corporate executive coaching. I've even did a bit of sports coaching. And it was I could do it and enjoyed it up to a point, but I don't love it to the degree that I love this kind of work. And similarly, quite a few clients will say, well, the f- I, when I saw you were a poet, I thought you would probably be okay. <laughs> you're one of us um and then on the other side obviously the coaching business supports the poetry it gives me time and money to to devote to that so um you know when i talk to clients about this i say look it doesn't necessarily have to be black and white you can you can have two or more of these things and what you want to do is build a little ecosystem for your creative work yeah actually um mark i i i we've chatted before you know about that mm-hmm. and i i greatly yeah. admire the discipline um that you you know put into that you know that where you corral that time that's my poetry time and that's my uh you know coaching time and i, I suppose that does you know a lot of people think create creativity needs to be ad hoc and that whole thing of you know waiting for inspiration but i i love the fact that you're you know you're so disciplined and when i first you know was aware of you you know a, a dozen or so years ago i remember you had this sort of spiel about all the stuff you did, and you said, "And by the way, I'm a also a poet," and uh, and I went, "Yes, that's it." Because you know, I suppose I've been over that dozen years looking myself for this symbiotic sort of practice, and uh, so I, I find the way that you approach it to be very inspiring. Thank you, Mark. Can I ask about how you intertwine something as obviously? creative as poetry and something that I think most of us would think is something you might occasionally read the old poem, but it's kind of a distant creative thing uh, with a, with a hard nosed commercial business, coaching people, solving their problems and so on. Where's the overlap in that? Um, well, on one level, there doesn't need to be an overlap. I mean, I don't write poems from the perspective as a coach. I just write them from whatever. <laughs> I'm grateful that a few crumbs that drop from the muses table and what I can make of them. So, you know, one thing I really like about this approach is there's nothing riding on the poetry other than the poem, which, you know, which hopefully is quite a lot, but it's, I, I can do what the hell I like when it comes to poetry. It's in terms of the coaching, the way it informs it really is it's, you know, it's on the level of values. Like I instinctively understand why creative freedom and autonomy and honoring the work is something that even an entrepreneur doesn't want to compromise on. And mm-hmm. I can understand quite a lot about the process and so on that will help clients and sometimes draw analogies um, from, you know, what I've learned. And, and it, you know, it can be interesting You know, what I've learned as a poet can sometimes relate to other creatives who are doing quite different things. So one example I can talk about, it's not confidential because it was a podcast interview. I interviewed an artist called Tyler Hobbs who writes, you know, he, he writes code that produces art. And I was like, really? And so you look at his stuff, it looks a bit like it might be computer-generated art done in Photoshop, but he said, no, it's all done with lines of code, and then the, 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 the program generates the art. And I was like, can I come and talk to you about that when you come on my podcast? Because I had a lot of questions. And when we got down to it in the interview, we found a lot of similarities between his creative process as a coder who's producing art and mine as a poet which is basically, you know, you produce something and you've got to be surprised by the draft, whether that's just dashing out a draft or 
what Tyler said. He never knows what the computer is going to produce on the screen. So he looks at it and there's that moment of, oh my God, I hate this. Or on a good day, oh my God, that's wonderful. That I could never have predicted that. And then you think, okay, well, what can I, how can I build on that? What can I work with that? Because contrary to the myth, sadly, it, it rarely arrives fully formed, as I'm sure you know. That, 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 his process sounds a lot like doing watercolours because, uh, you know, well, yeah, because the watercolours is so fluid and, you know, there's a lot. Yeah, so it's, it's really, really interesting. Um, it, it, I'm just thinking in your, you know, in the, in the broad uh, breadth of people that you coach and you talked about, you know, uh, probably the sort of most commercial is, you know, business owners that, you know, have a, a creative business but they're really sort of focused on business. How, do you, like, uh, run into sort of issues of, you know, them managing creatives you know because we you know i know that in my past history it's been one of the most difficult things you know being very creative myself and wanting to empower people to be creative yet it's it's often a fine line because if you just let them go then you don't make any money <laughs> oh yes yeah this this and actually this is something that part of my work that i that came out of the executive and corporate coaching and training i used to do years ago so about 20 odd years ago i was a partner in a small business coaching consultancy and we were going into large organizations and helping managers to become better coaches for their teams so ideally we would start with the board and then go all the way down and the idea is that with each level coaching the level below then what they were trying to do was to get away from the old command and control style of management realizing that wasn't really fit for purpose in a lot of 21st century information-based businesses so what you can do as a if you're a manager coach is you can instead of telling somebody what to do and micromanaging and giving them a hard time if they didn't do what you expected which is the traditional approach i'm sure we've all experienced at some point in our career you you ask questions and you listen and you give feedback and you hold people accountable through a series of meetings and conversations now on the one and one slight pejorative phrase for this is soft control because on the one hand, you're giving freedom. You're saying, well, how, what are your ideas? How do you think we could do it? What options do you think we have? But on the other hand, when you ask a question, you're really directing their focus. And I found that really useful in helping, say, creative directors or studio owners or um, you know, other business owners. I say, look, you need to be a coach for your team. Because on the one hand, if they're creative, they're going to want freedom. They're going to want autonomy. They're going to want some space to do it their way. But on the other hand, they're doing this on your dime, and <laughs> you are the one who's going to have to explain to the to you know to the to the client or the customer or maybe even the regulator <laughs> why things <laughs> didn't go according to plan. And so you can't just give them a carte blanche. Yeah, yeah. So I find yeah. that the more you can get into coaching, asking questions, and also. I think this is a real challenge if you're creative yourself, because as soon as we see a brief, we think, oh, I know how I would approach that. And, and the <laughs> part of you starts up. And it's the danger is that you steer people towards doing your version. Yeah. And you need to be able to let go of that and be open to the possibility. They could come up with something different that would be equally as good, or dare I say it, even better. <laughs> and that's okay. And I think it's, it's a little bit like going from being the first violinist to being the conductor that your creative canvas is the team and the opportunity is you can get a lot more sounds you can get a lot more impact with an orchestra than you can with just one instrument 
Now, some people really love this idea and they go with it. Others will always be resisting and thinking, yeah, but I want to do it myself. And so I think that you've got to make a decision about how you structure that organization and, and who does what maybe. But I certainly think there isn't a creative opportunity as a leader. And um, if you want some practical tips on getting started, there's a great book by Michael Bungay-Stania called The Coaching Habit. And Michael's been on the podcast a couple of times and I quizzed him about because the book's really written for corporate managers, similar to what I was doing 20-odd years ago. But I really think a lot of it is is very, very portable and applicable in a coaching context. Uh, sorry, a creative business context. So, And he, what he, Michael does is he boils it down to seven basic questions that you can have in your back pocket. Even if you're not, you've never been on a coaching training, if you've got these three, seven questions, then that gives you a, a, a really great toolkit that's been refined you know, through a lot of Michael's work. So I definitely recommend that book. Look, I'll, I'll look that up. I, I've, I've listened to that podcast, but I, I met Michael. I did a workshop of his about 15 years ago in Sydney. Um, I know he's, he lives in Canada now, but his, his whole thing about great work, uh, I use all the time. It's a very, very powerful, uh, very powerful thing. Um, and yeah, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it's, it's very good. Um, uh, Mark, we we in our uh, briefing notes we asked you for uh, if you could supply maybe a a, um, a quote or an idea and a and a story. So do you have? Uh, this is um, where you grade my homework, isn't it? <laughs> Did you do it? <laughs> I suppose we should have asked that in the in the pre-briefing. <laughs> so yeah, I, I was thinking about so a quote that stayed with me recently is I'm reading a book by. Don Patterson called the poem, which is a big, thick blue tome, all about how how poems are written. And there's a, a really there was a line that stayed with me where he said, "Very often, the better poet is simply the one who is willing to stare at the line for an hour longer than anyone else." That you keep revisiting and revisiting, and thinking oh, that's not quite. It's, yeah, it's pretty good, but it's not quite there. And he said very often that's how you get from a competent line, a pretty good line, to something that is really great and surprising. And he said, you know, there's a paradox that this fussy, meticulous, patient approach is the one that's very often leads to the most surprising and bold and, and dramatic results. Um, another analogy he uses is he said it's like safe cracking. You know, you you turn it a little bit this way. Go, do I take a comma out or do I put it in? You turn it back. What about semicolon? And at some point, something clicks and the door opens on the goods. <laughs> so that certainly resonates with my experience of writing poetry. Reminds me of um, the artist Rothko, who I mm -hmm. hear painted incredibly slowly he would spend day after day just looking at his own work just trying to decide if it was doing what he wanted it to do uh, so it's interesting that idea of time looking and allowing yourself to interrogate your own work wonderful quote and i think very often it's the number of times you know it's that may so one thing i do i've got all my poems on scrivener and then sync to my phone so wherever i am first thing in the morning sometimes i'll open up and have a look at a poem with a fresh brain and I can always be looking. I'm always check, check. How does it look? How does it look? And I was really intrigued to hear once that Leonardo used to do this thing where he used to go out of the room of the studio and then he used to stick his head down around the door really fast <laughs> as, so that he could see the painting as if he was seeing <laughs> it for the first time, <laughs> which I thought was kind of hilarious and, and also quite useful at the same time. It's that you, 
the more you look at it with that fresh eye, but also on high receive, the more you're going to pick up that just tiny little thing that could make a big difference. Yeah, yeah. Kind of easier with visual arts. You can actually you can look at your work in a mirror, or sometimes turning it upside down gives you that fresh eye. With poetry, I, I think maybe you've got the tougher task is just to look. But you at can. It. But you can, oh. like Mimi, Mimi Calvati, my teacher, used to do this with us. Like when we were being particularly dim, she, she would get the poem and she would walk up to the other end of the room and she said, right, now what do you see? And we would go, but Mimi, we can't read it. And she would say, that's good. That's why I'm here. <laughs> what shape is it? You know, and just get us to see the shape on the page. Yes. And like when you do that, you see stuff like, oh, gosh, yeah, there's that line in the middle that sticks out all on its own. What the hell is that do- doing? You know, when the rest of it is so... And, you know, there's so much of poetry is about... Well, it, it's about the shape. It's about the form. That's what makes it a poem. And that mm. can be a an oral form. It could be the rhythms and the, the sound that you hear. But it can also be for the eye. So, yeah, sometimes I have looked at poems in the mirror. I, I never really thought about that visual aspect, um, but I don't know if you know, I'm sure you're aware of the book by Betty um, Edwards, Drawing in the Right-Hand Side of the Brain. Oh, um, it's a great book, yeah. Uh, and on, in that book, you know, one of the, her things is, is about, you know, she says that people can't draw because uh, they're drawing what they think they're seeing rather than what yeah. they're seeing. And yeah. one of the tricks that she has is to draw... Uh, to, to turn the subject upside down. Um, so yeah. obviously not, not for live drawing, uh, but from a photograph. <laughs> <to turn it. laughs> Actually, just one little request, please. If you wouldn't mind, stand <laughs> on your head. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, but interesting in that book, the, 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 she gives an example of a, of a student who couldn't draw and the, the drawing they're drawing is a drawing of Picasso. Now, it's not an early Picasso that is, you know, with his beautiful draftsmanship it's actually a sort of a you know a, a quite a distorted drawing and when i show the examples i say to people actually that's that's the good drawing that's not the bad here's the bad drawing right <laughs> but then when you turn it upside down and you see the other drawing so that, that's really interesting about that uh you know yeah looking at something differently uh longer that, or differently yeah because i mean that book is a wonderful book and it's really what because i read it as a teenager when i was really into art and it really, what I took from it was most of drawing is looking. You know, it's looking to look differently and see differently. That is that is 100% correct. And it was a wonderful exercise where she said, if you want to draw a tree, don't try and draw the tree because then you just draw an icon of yeah. what you think a tree is. Draw all the spaces around the leaves. And I yeah, did yeah. that for a bit. And then I can, it was like a magic eye and I suddenly looked at it and it's like there, all the leaves kept popped out of the page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it is. It, drawing the negative spaces, it's something. Uh, yeah. And look again, I I use you know examples you know uh, a lot in my in my work because it, it really is, you know, creativity is a you know is a sea change and you know and, and her example it's a great example. Well, I hope you notice what's going on here. We've got the poet teaching two visual artists how to do their craft. It's not <laughs> <laughs> well, and vice versa, and vice versa. <laughs> Well, Cross fertilization is the academic word. If we want to dignify it, and we just talk about that. It's fantastic. Um, do you have a story for us? Yeah, I'll tell you a story about Mimi. Because um, so Mimi Calvati, she's one of the foremost poets here in the UK, and she started teaching me about twenty years ago. And I remember at that point, I'd 
you know, they say when the student's ready, the, the teacher appears. Well, I think I certainly was ready. And I'd been around quite a few different writing classes. And I had the same experience that I would go in and I was quite pleased because I'd have a poem that I would, I would know would have at least one or two good lines. And I'll go and read it and people say, oh, that's a good line and that one. And I would think, oh, I'm glad you noticed that. And But it actually kept me lazy because it seemed to confirm that I had talent, whatever that was. And I never, I wasn't really learning anything. So I'd go away and then, you know, mope as we poets tend to do. And wonder why, why things are not getting any better. And then one day I, I met Mimi and I went into her class at the poetry school. And within 15 minutes, I realized I was not even in the top half of this class, which was a little, a little um, discomforting. And then within two or three lessons, we had one, uh, I had a, a pivotal conversation where she, she looked at my draft. She said, Mark, I don't get this. She said, this line is really good, and this line is really good. And I thought, oh, I'm glad you noticed. And she said, so why, why don't you make the rest of it as good as that? <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> and I was shocked. But, of course, she was serious. And at and that, that moment, I realized what it is to be a real poet rather than just a, a dabbler, that you're not just satisfied with splurging something out and thinking your job's done. Actually, the, the work, that's where the work begins. And what I learned from Mimi really is the joy of rewriting, which is really where writing begins. When you've got a draft, then it's that's the analogy I use is it's like plasticine. I don't know if you have the same brand as it Play Doh they have in the States, but I've got some plasticine to play with once I've got a draft. And, uh, you know, that, you know, that's where you end up with the, the Don Patterson safe cracking over many months. Um, and so I think a lot of, creativity is is that it's it's revisiting rework reworking and you know the paradox is you're trying to create something really fresh by spending a lot of time on it <laughs> is it mark mark twain or or misquoted as mark twain my apologies didn't have time to write you a short letter uh, that's right yeah sorry the letter's so long i didn't have time to make it shorter that's 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 absolutely it you know you look at the haiku masters you know, there's a lot of thoughts gone into that um, and Mark, do you have an idea for us uh, to get us? Thinking? I do. Yeah. So, okay. So we've been talking quite a lot about the the intrinsic, doing it for love, finding space for your art angle, which is clearly important. That's where we start from. But the idea I want to share is around. Okay, but what about the big picture of your career? And because as creatives on on any given day it can be very easy to think what the hell am i doing with my life and you know we hear about cousin george who's doing so well in the big law firm or the you know the dental practice or whatever it is and he, and every year he's got a new promotion and a new job title and a bigger car and a fancier office and it's fairly easy to see george is going somewhere with his life and meanwhile i'm looking at this poem upside down <laughs> what <laughs> you know people are getting increasingly concerned <laughs> you know you get more and more friends so i just thought i would pop around for a chat because you've been speaking to my parents haven't you <laughs> we're related mark you know i think we're right exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're not my long lost cousin are you? <laughs> <laughs> and so the idea i came up with to overcome this from looking at what makes the difference between a creative where there's a they do have a sense of progression and satisfaction and indeed reward getting easier and on a bigger scale as you go further is forget the career ladder focus on creating 
assets. So, you know, there's no career ladder for people like us. Nobody is sitting there waiting to grade us and, you know, you go next up the rung. I mean, there was a famous quote from Auden where he used to say in old age, he said, if I'd entered the church, I'd be a bishop by now. But he wasn't. I mean, he was just a poet, you know. So, um, but so the idea of an asset is something in a financial sense, an asset is something that you own or you create that will generate value going forward. So it might be a stock portfolio or it might be a property where you get rent or you sell it or whatever. I'm not talking about that. This is you know disclaimer. This is not financial advice. Seek your independent <laughs> counsel on this. We'll put that but, in the fine print. Right. But in the in a creative's career, we can create our own assets. And by that I mean first and foremost your your work, the catalogue, the back um the back catalogue, the portfolio that if you can point, you know, if if you can point to say to the Sistine Chapel and said, Well, I did that or um you know, you've, you've made movies or you've built buildings or you've got, um, you know, a string of hit records or albums or whatever it may be. There's lots of types of value from that that are ongoing because you're always the guy who did that. Um, what was some, the guitar, David Bowie's piano player, Mike Garson. So he played this piano solo on Aladdin Sane, which is generally considered to be the best rock piano solo ever, which is basically it's a jazz solo that he improvised. And he says to this day, several times a week, he gets an email with the subject Aladdin Sane because they want him to do another version of that for something project they've got. And that's something he recorded in like 1975, maybe four. And it's still, it's the gift that keeps on giving for him. Mm. And we don't all, you know, have that level. But the idea is that if you focus on making great work, work that gets you noticed, work that will build your reputation, by definition, that's got to be the work that you love doing the most. And by the way, the psychologists have proven this. and That's another conversation. But if you're not enjoying it, it won't be any good. So it's not, not to say that you enjoy every moment on it, because there's plenty of suffering can still happen along the way. But this is where the intrinsic and the extrinsic can meet. If you, you know, that novel that you wrote in your spare time may not earn you very much money directly, but it can bring you all kinds of opportunities. I mean, there could be financial reward, there could be licensing, there could be a movie deal, or there could be just somebody coming to you and saying, hey, that was really cool. I've got an idea for something we could do together. Mm. And opportunity is a huge currency in the creative industries. So the idea is that when you're planning your career as a creative, think about different types of asset you could create. So just very briefly, there's actual pieces of work. There's the intellectual property in the work. There are what I call social assets, so things like your brand, your audience, your reputation within your industry, your network of trusted contacts. All of that, you know, you can leverage that to, to make things happen. Um, you can look at things like a business model or processes. Like if you learn, I don't know, a productivity system or an approach to sales that works consistently for your business, that's a, that's an asset because you don't have to think about that anymore. And it's like a, a little labor-saving device humming away in the corner of your office. And the biggest asset of, of all, of course, is you. Because as a creator, you are the person who can add the most value your knowledge, your skills, your experience, 
your capacity to create work, even, you know, our pain, because as artists, we're very good at recycling pain. My wife says to me, if I'm ever getting bent out of shape about something, my wife will rather tactfully say, well, don't worry, it'll be a great story for your coaching clients, won't it? <laughs> I say, yeah, but not today. <laughs> let, let me have my suffering today and then I'll recycle it. But eventually we can. I mean, you think about all kinds of experience, you, it, it's grist in a mill. So I would say, number one, look at ways to grow as a person, to develop your skills, your experience, your courage, um, because that's the thing that's going to make the biggest difference long term, you will be the biggest asset. And alternatively, you could, you know, we could always be our own biggest liability when, when we get in our own way. So um, I would say, you know, make that your, your compass. Don't, don't, don't be like cousin George. Yeah. <laughs> you want to be like him, you know, build, build your assets and then people, money will come to you. Opportunity will come to you. The things that you want to do get easier and there's more interesting and fun people around to do them with as time goes by. Interesting point, Mark, about sort of diagnosing pain, using pain as a sort of springboard to create something. I noticed you, one of your podcasts, you talk about learning Japanese and how inadequate yeah. you felt at the beginning of that journey compared to fluent Japanese, whereas you speak French pretty well. So it's a painful process to learn as a beginner. Yeah. Um, and, it, and what struck me about your podcast is how much you'd self-analyzed and how you were able to share the learnings from that painful journey, where most of us, the rest of us, I think, would have just gone, I hate this, and why am I doing it? So that self-analysis, particularly of painful moments, I think must be a really important trait for creative people. Yeah, I think that there's, was it Graham Greene said, there's always a splinter of ice in the heart of the writer, even in the midst of the most horrendous experiences, you're thinking, okay, can I use this somehow? Or do you know what? <laughs> do you, or at least it's making notes, and it's, the recorder is on. And you might end up using it. Um, so, yeah, I do, I do think, again, I did a retreat with Don Patterson, you know, the Mr. Safe Cracking guy. And he said, he was talking about why he didn't really get on with, you know, writing prompts. And he said, why not just live the reflective life? <laughs> you know, that if you, if there's a little bit of awareness and observation going on, throughout life then naturally you know there's there's always that other perspective i think was the artist and if we're you know if we cultivate that in various ways then that that can help reduce our own suffering while producing work i i actually i i, I think it's uh, very interesting I, I just wanted to go back to your thing about assets because i was thinking mm -hmm. you know in my career as an architect i, I worked for many developers uh and most of the developers worked with they were developing uh, uh, units and it was all about you know building and selling building and selling and it was all about profit and loss uh, but the ones that were most successful were the ones that kept and built their balance sheet um, you know which is obviously you know more assets and liabilities uh -huh. and, and they're the ones that have been able to um, you know when there's a downturn the, the the guys that are just looking at the profit and loss they've got no no assets behind them and they and they fail whereas the guys that um uh you know which t have to take you know you have to spend a lot of time you know delaying gratification uh to build those assets um which i think is also probably similar to the creative process you know you just yeah. can't you know you know get it all now and then you've got it you know well, it that's, yeah i mean that's, i think where we all start off certainly i did when mimi gave me that dressing down was you know i want to have finished now <laughs> um 
I went, again, I went to a workshop with the American poet, Mark Doty, once, and he said, our problem is we want to get out of the poem too quickly. Yeah, we want to have it finished and published and garlanded and all of that. He said, but spend a bit more time with it. You know, there's lots more to learn from that poem before you're done. Well, can I just want to ask a, a sort of related question that builds on a couple of themes that we've been talking about, because we've been talking about you're in the creative moment and you need to work, allow it time and to to in a way enjoy them or learn from the pain. But I remember a different, um, I think it was an earlier podcast of yours, you were talking about being in a creative mood or that, that drawing mood. Oh, um, yeah. Because and, and, we deal a lot with business people and business people, I think, treat every day and every hour as pretty much the same. So it's kind of we're going to be creative now and then we're going to analyse a balance sheet in five minutes time and then we're going to re review the budgets and then you want to be more creativity and it's kind of like jumping from one mind state to another yeah Can you tell us about how important is the creative mood and then is there a way of making sure you're in the right creative mood yeah i mean really you know all i think all art is a performance art i'm sure paul will say this about watercolors if you're not careful i presume the water could go all over the place and you're like oh Okay, and that, that one's going in the bin. And it must be similar with photography, Chris. The, your, the state that you're in is crucial to the outcome. So this is where I actually started my career as a coach. I was originally, I was a hypnotherapist, and I got very interested in what you could do, use, do using hypnosis to help artists. And I also did a bit of work with professional sports people on getting into the, the right zone. So I think one thing you can do is look for what, triggers you what gets you into that um that space it, and this is why ritual and routine and habit are really um important for a lot of creatives because you know i go into the same room with the same place with the same brand of coffee wafting into my nostrils and the same music playing and i get the same software out and my brain goes oh i remember this it's time to write so that's one way of looking at it another way is i think look at the natural rhythm of the day and maybe we're more conscious of this because it's my morning and your evening uh, <laughs> today. But like years ago, I did a silent meditation retreat at a Buddhist monastery. And it was an amazing experience on several levels. But one of them was I realized that my level of awareness and even insight would fluctuate during the day. In fact, after a few days, I discovered that I would tend to have a, a major insight about 10 past 10 in the morning. And it got to the point I would even be out because we'd alternate sitting meditation on the mat and then go out to the, the meadow at the back and do walking meditation where you walk up and down. And I can remember looking at my watch thinking, okay, about 15 minutes, it'll be along soon. <laughs> and it was. <laughs> and it was slightly freaky. And But then the corollary of that was I realized after lunch, which was about half 10, last meal of the day was half 10 in the morning. Um, and then in the afternoon, I would get a bit sleepy and I would get more frustrated. I would feel like I wasn't making enough progress, which of course, as the Buddhists say, you're not supposed to be making progress, but then, but then, you know, how do we get to enlightenment? But that's another conversation. Um, but again, after a few days, I caught on to this and I realized, no, every hour of the day is not the same there. It's like riding a wave of energy, maybe even enlightenment, or maybe at least awareness and insight that it's stronger in the morning. And the afternoon, you go into what the psychologists call the nap zone, uh, where sensible people have a nap. Others, corporate types, don't they power through? They have another coffee. Um, because nobody wants to look 
like they're being unproductive, even if they are being unproductive. <laughs> um, and then, of course, then the energy can lift again in the evening. Weirdly enough, so that you know the night owls among us, they are happy to write into the small hours. So what I did after that was I structured my working day to make so I would catch that creative wave in the morning, basically. And this is the way I generally do it. That um, I typically coach or do meetings in the afternoon. And I, I sometimes joke that if you want me to coach you in the morning, you need to move to Australia and you two are living proof of that with this recording. We're doing it because normally I would just do it by default in the afternoons. And then the mornings are my own projects, including poetry, including my own podcast or whatever. And it's great because I know that three hours in the morning are worth more to me creatively than three hours in the afternoon. Mm. Um, and then also, frankly, by the time it gets to the afternoon, I'm ready to talk to someone. <laughs> I've had enough <laughs> of whatever it was I was struggling with. I want to talk to somebody about their stuff. And it's, it's great. So I would say get to know yourself. Notice the things that make it easiest for you to get in the creative zone. So if that is the evening, guard your evenings. If it's the morning, guard your mornings or get up early if you have to go to work. Um, and don't see the other nice thing about this is – I can call myself a writer all day without having to do anything after lunch. Um, so it's nice to have the title without the responsibility. And, you know, I'm not, you don't have that constant sense of, oh, I should be doing more. I should be doing more. It's, I, I, I say to clients, make a place for everything in your life. Then you can focus on that thing, you know, whether it's doing the accounts or having a, a meeting or, or, you know, or writing a Petrarchan sonnet. It's lovely. For what it's worth, all my photo shoots take place in the morning because I have really? to finish. A lot, of them, a lot of them take place at dawn because that's when I get the light I want. But, but wow. um, yeah, afternoon. Great. Oh, it's fabulous. Yeah, I have to plan for not having woken up mentally because some of my cameras have to be ready the night before because I won't even remember what the buttons do at 5 a.m. The camera's it's had its coffee, but you haven't. Right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, Mark, right. um, that's uh it's been a, a fantastic uh chat um and we don't want to keep you because you're on your morning and we don't want to keep you from your uh from your work uh so you can call yourself a writer this, for the rest of the day this, okay well i will do a little bit just to you know show willing but you know this this counts as well this is this is stimulation so well I, i'm ple we're, ple we're pleased to hear that um look it's been uh an absolute you know uh, great honor to have you on on the show and it's been uh both enlightening and very entertaining and a, and a lot of fun uh, having having a chat chat with you. Um, it's been fun, yeah. hasn't it? Thank you. I've enjoyed. Yeah. Thank you very much, Mark. It's a huge pleasure and privilege to have you on the show. Thank you for your wonderful insights. Uh, really appreciate it. So a huge thank you to Mark McGuinness there. Um, we'd love to hear your feedback. Uh, there was so much good stuff in there. Paul and I are excited and enthused. But what do you think? Please tap your comments into the comments section. Um, we'd love it if you give the podcast a rating. Um, if you loved it, tell your mates. Uh, and of course, tune in to future episodes where we'll carry on our journey to understand and share the tools of creativity. Yes, and uh, thank, thank you again, Mark. And and please also tune in to our future episodes, but also do look up Mark's podcast, The 21st Century Creative. It is uh, absolutely superb, and he has an amazing array of incredible guests. So um, uh, thanks for tuning in, and we'll, we'll um, see you next week. See you next week.